the advice here would be not to just react in a negative way, you know, stay the course. Obviously if, if some, if what you're doing isn't working, change the, change the plan and kind of pivot from that, from that plan or figure out, you know, bring in an additional resource or somebody else that can help, but keep your head on straight, you know, level-headed, make sure that your sights are focused on the fact that this is a long-term play. As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey everybody and welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host Jerome and I've got the pleasure of having Kyle Jones with me today. Kyle, how are things out in Houston? Thanks for having me, Jerome. Things are good. We've got some good weather, 70 and sunny, so all good here. Beautiful. So before we dive into the episode, do me a favor and let me know how the listeners can get in contact with you if they love what you have to share with us today. Uh, sure. So they can actually just send me an email directly. I don't mind. It's kjones at truepointcap.com or they can check out our website. It's www.truepointcap.com as well. Awesome. Awesome. Some of the listeners reach out. You might regret yeah. that. <laughs> yep. So happy to help. Yeah, I, I know that's right. So let's dive into it, man. Um, I understand that you've been buying in Huntsville and a few other places. Kind of give me a little bit about your background, how you got into the space and what you're most excited about right now. Sure. Yeah. So um, like a lot of other folks, we started with single family homes. Um, We started, my wife and I, when I say we, we started uh, flipping houses. Um, We did it with an accidental flip or it was a live-in flip back in 2012. Um, And then you know, once we realized that you could actually make some money doing uh, flipping houses and, and, and investing in real estate, we decided to buy some more single family homes. Um, it took about a couple of years before we uh, did our next deal, but, um, you know, bought five houses all at once. So had five different projects going on at the same time. And um, around that same time, quickly after we, as quickly as we closed on those houses, as, as quickly as I knew that it wasn't scalable, especially because I was working a W-2 job at the time as well. So um, that's when I really started looking at um, the different types of asset classes within, you know, not just single family homes, but looked at mobile homes, self-storage and multifamily, and ultimately kind of settled on multifamily. Um, So from there, we started looking at buying some smaller multifamily. Uh, I really, you know, wasn't even aware that at the time that you could raise capital um, to, to buy larger buildings, which is what we do now. Um, we bought our first multifamily deal from there and had a couple more since then. And then the 14 unit that we bought, it was at a time where we were kind of out of our own capital at that point. So either A, we couldn't do another deal until we saved some more, or we sold some deals, or what we ultimately found was raising capital. And so, uh, and like I said, that's, it's where we are now. Um, and ended up educating myself on just how to raise capital, how to talk to investors and, 
you know, just how to put all that together and ultimately decided that I couldn't do that by myself. So that at that point I, I had um, found a partner who had already done this and already been down that path. And so learned a lot by sitting side by side with him and watching him and, um, you know, kind of going through that process together. So did you join your partner on the deal because you were passive? Did you pay for some mentorship or was he just that generous? <laughs> well, uh, there, uh, it was a situation where there was some sort of incentive for him. If it, it was one of those situations where, um, he basically said, if you find a deal, um, you know, we'll help you do the rest, you know, that was large enough that fit into the, his criteria. So it was, you know, it was mutually beneficial for him as well. Cause you know, he was doing deals at a time where the market was still kind of dried up and, you know, I was bringing value because I was introducing in new markets uh, to, to him that he wasn't investing in. And so, and you know, just kind of him being able to leverage me as an individual by be, by doing more deals and me leveraging his experience to be able to raise capital and ultimately purchase the deal together. So it was mutually beneficial for us both. How'd you find the deal? I always tell people who come to our program, hey, the way that you become valuable is by bringing a deal. The people with experience and capital are looking for deals. And if you don't have experience or capital, that's how you get into a deal. So how'd you find yours? Well, I think um, before you start looking for deals, you got to know how to underwrite a deal. And so you've got to find some sort of financial model, either building your own or there's obviously tools that you can buy um, that are specific to multifamily even these days. Um, but you need to learn how to underwrite the deal before you can actually go find a deal. Because if you're just kind of making calls into brokers or sending out letters to potential owners, you know, direct to seller type situation, um, you're not going to know if you have a deal or not, if you don't know how to underwrite it. So that's why I say start there. But for me, it was, there was really no secret in how I started generating leads. Um, so I'm, former high tech sales. I, I've always, I've been in sales my entire career uh, before being a full-time real estate investor. So I had that background, you know, I, I knew how to talk to people. I knew how to build rapport um, and, you know, kind of generate some interest in, in potentially, you know, showing me deals. So it was really just a matter of getting out there, being face-to-face. -face. It has a huge advantage, I think, especially in today's market and even more so today. Uh, although it's a little bit more limiting because of where we are in the pandemic and coronavirus, but you know, you can still get face to face, you know, you just need a mask on. So it, it, if you can commit to that and just being out in front, you're going to have a leg up on anybody else because I mean, I've been sitting with brokers while they're just getting countless calls, countless emails. I mean, literally as we're meeting and I've been able to befriend one of them uh, pretty closely where we've actually become friends. And, you know, I've, so I can ask him straight up questions and, you know, he has even mentioned to me that he doesn't have time to return all of the calls, return all of the emails, especially when they have an actual listing, let alone when they don't have a listing, when they just have somebody that's, you know, trying to build their team, as they say, because everybody's got to have a broker on their team when they're trying to find a multifamily deal. So it's really just a matter of finding a deal. And that's, so I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I did. I found a deal on LoopNet and I went into the market and I sat there and spent three days in the market. And I talked to the broker 
that had the listing. And then I met with other brokers who didn't have listings. And that's kind of how I established my initial introduction and then continued to follow up. By the way, even though I didn't have a deal under contract, I continued to go back in the market. And I was just in front of them on a regular basis. And even still to this day, I'm still getting out there. You know, I've been flying this whole time during the, the pandemic and, um, you know, still getting out there trying to drum up business. So it's really no secret other than just actually doing the work and getting out there in front of them. Do the work. And Goggins says, do, do the work. Okay. And so you've done a few different deals. You've been innovative and more aggressive in your approach to getting in front of brokers, getting face to face. I think that's the secret sauce right now. And all those deals have went just as planned, right? Just as you performed, you fit every number on a performer, right? Uh, yeah, everything. Everything. No, <laughs> I wish, you know, um, actually the, the first deal that we ended up raising money on um, was so far probably the toughest where, you know, is even like second guessing myself, like, man, should I have actually raised capital or should I just stick to the smaller multifamily or even go back to single family because I was in com complete control and um, everything else. But, you know, so we have projected a nice little return of, I don't even remember what it was at the time, but um, we projected it over a six-year business plan. So we were um, doing a bridge loan and renovating units and then going to refinance or sell. Um, or, or actually, what we had modeled was the refinance and then hold for another few years, which took, took us to year six. Within really three months of us closing on that deal, we ended up dropping that that uh, deal is 56 units down to 50% occupancy. And the reason why was because there was just uh, non-paying tenants. We really can't tell if they were even paying at the time because the previous seller just didn't have really good records at all. You know, the bank statements that we received were all co-mingled with everything else. So it was actually very difficult to do any type of normal homework where you would want to verify deposits going in. It was very much a, a mom and pop owner. Um, but it turns out, so th they might've been paying before, but they weren't paying us. <laughs> so we had to um, evict them. And, you know, this was pre-COVID before, you know, when there wasn't an eviction moratorium out there. But so we dropped it down to 50% occupancy and it just kind of stalled. Um, the good thing is we were getting, um, renovations done. So we were spending a lot of money and not having a lot of income coming in at the same time. And a big part of that too, is probably because of the property manager that we had chosen, you know, they were more of a single family property manager, um, not necessarily larger multifamily. Um, so that was one thing, um, you know, they, they were more interested in just getting a larger property, adding it to their portfolio versus actually doing the work. And so. So we had all this kind of happen at once. And, you know, thankfully, we as soon as we switched property managers, which is probably another, you know, it took us about four to five months before we actually did that. After we closed, uh, we immediately started seeing results. And, you know, the, the good part about this whole thing is that as we were placing new tenants into this property, um, we were actually getting more than our year three projected rents. So we were really able to see a tangible benefit of, of doing this, but it was just, 
um, virtually no cash flow, definitely not distributing any capital back to investors. And so there was a whole lot that went into that, that um, we learned to button up our due diligence moving in and making sure that we don't have to do that again going into a property. Or if we do, we know that going in uh, ahead of time. Wow. <laughs> so you you saw it through though. I mean, you didn't back off. We did. You know, once you're in, you're in. So you said you had membership from your buddy. What did he say when you saw it at 50%? We were both in it together. So they uh, we had, it wasn't just one other partner. We had a couple partners in there. So we were seeing this kind of happen all at the same time together. So we were watching it and it was just more of a um, standpoint of like, first, we need to communicate to our investors what's happening. Um, and then second, how do we fix this? So, you know, at the same time, without losing our investors, and I mean that from a standpoint of just like without losing their confidence, you know, making sure that we can get through this and then, you know, that they'll hope, hopefully they'll invest with us again down the line. And so just trying to get out in front of that and, and trying to make sure that we're over communicating, that they know exactly what's going on, but at the same time that they know that we have a plan to make this work. And at the very minimum too, I think it's, it's really hard to um, kind of compartmentalize this uh, at least I've had this experience and even with some of our investors, but, you know, we are in this for long-term, you know, five to six years is a long time. And so these things that happen, you know, even if it's a stretch over the course of a couple months, I mean, even take a look at COVID and, you know, however long this expands, you know, from like March until, you know, November, that's just kind of a blip when you have affected that in across a five to six year business plan. And so, you know, I would say the advice here would be not to just react in a negative way, you know, stay the course. Obviously, if, if some, if what you're doing isn't working, change the, change the plan and kind of pivot from that, from that plan or figure out, you know, bring in an additional resource or somebody else that can help, but, you know, keep, keep your head on straight, you know, level-headed, make sure that your sights are focused on the fact that this is a long-term play. Now, I want to make sure I didn't mishear you. Did you say you guys brought in the wrong property manager too? You had a property manager? Yeah, we did. What size was <laughs> what was size was the deal and how did you um, how did you pick your property manager? So, we well, to start with the the second question first, we started by trying to find a uh, just somebody local who knew the market um, and was familiar with the neighborhoods and the demographics and everything else and so um, the problem was there just really wasn't a ton of, you know, multifamily uh, property managers in this market. Um, it was in Chattanooga, so it was a smaller market. And so ultimately, you know, we, we, we went through a vetting process with multiple property managers in that market, but we just didn't really get a good vibe from any of them. And I think we just kind of settled on, on the best of what we had. Mainly because too, we didn't think that a larger property manager would want to come into a market that you know for fifty six units. So fifty six units was the answer to your other question. That's how big the deal is. So, you know, it's not enough to really carry a full payroll. You know, where you have a full time maintenance person and a full time leasing manager. So, trying to get a larger manager in there was a little bit more of a challenge. 
A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. How'd you find the replacement? Because I mean, that part's important. I Don't feel bad. I, I did the same on my first deal where I wrote the contract. So don't feel bad at all. But how did you figure out, hey, we're going to pivot to this guy or gal and here's why? Well, the good thing about hiring a bad property manager is now you have a list of criteria. (laughs) So you have a list of criteria of things that you don't want from a property manager. And so like even down to as simple as I couldn't stand the way that they were reporting their financials. It was just very hard to understand and, you know, something that we had to really kind of take out and filter to be able to provide to our investors where typically we do actually scrape that down, you know, on, on the financial aspect that we scrape that down and put it into a better readable format to our investors, but we also provide raw financials. And so in this particular case, we didn't because the property managers financials were just, they were very hard to understand and, and read. So, you know, just we came up, we had that list that we formulated and then, um, you know, myself and one of the other partners, we just started kind of calling through and we started networking with other, by this point, we, we knew of some other people who were doing deals. We, we knew of other properties. So we were calling out other properties who, you know, were already in the market. So maybe they would see that they could get economies of scale. And so finally we found uh, a few where we kind of narrowed down the shortlist um, and ultimately landed on one who uh, turned out to be great. And we held on to them through the entire life cycle of the property, which we ended up selling off and, um, and they were great. So, um, but it took, you know, a couple of stumbles coming out of the gate. Like you said, I'm sure you experienced the same thing, Jerome. Now you've got, you've got a laundry list of things that you want to see in a property manager based on, you know, your mistakes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't care who you hire as a property manager, there's going to be something that's an issue. Um, fortunately for us, we've been able to hire folks. Well, one was really good at filling units. The next group that we hired is really good at not spending money. And so, figuring that balance out, um, and some of it I think is really based on how you comp, but I think you have to comp to incentivize them to do the things that you want done. For instance, from my perspective, it doesn't make sense to comp people for filling units. I want to comp them for getting renewals. One, I'm not paying to renovate the unit. And then two, they're going to work harder to keep them during the year, at least in concept, if they get paid a bigger fee for getting a renewal versus, hey, now we got to go lease it. Now, I've heard a property manager say, hey, Jerome, I don't feel good about taking money from you if somebody renews. And I I tell them repeatedly, I want to pay you to renew because if I got to turn it, it's at least two grand versus, you know, you having to turn it, release it and all that other stuff. So that's 
one of my pet peeves anyway. One of the things we did in that same scenario is, is not we we actually don't uh, comp based on leases or renewals. We comp solely based on collections. So we send a benchmark out there at the beginning of the year. We have a budget and we back into our compensation structure that way. So mutually aligned. That's the way we actually do it now. It's just one flat fee for everything. And but. I've always floated that idea. Hey, I'll, if you want to charge me a lease up fee, I want to backload it and give you renewals and they never take it. So it, it tells me a lot about them when we have that conversation. So I think you might've touched on this a little bit, but what was the financial impact of the misstep? And like, was there other collateral damage? I know you said you don't want to lose the investor. So maybe how'd you communicate the message to them? And what type of impact did that have on a relationship if there was any adverse? Yeah, so fortunately, there really hasn't been an adverse effect on the relationship with any of the investors so far. Um, and we paid them, you know, we, we ended up selling the deal. So it, the story turned out uh, great. And, you know, we, we sold it for... Um, much more than what we bought it for. So, you know, every, they were essentially made whole, you know, I guess the financial impact of it though, was we had projected to, if nothing else changed, and even if we were renovating units, we were projecting to start paying out distributions about six months after we closed. So obviously that put a pause to that. So we're not going distri- to distribute cash when we're bleeding out the other end. And so, we ended up not making our first distribution till almost 12 months from the time of ownership. Um, and ultimately they were okay with that um, at, you know, by that point, you know, at first it was a little bit of a shock. Um, you know, we communicated via email and then um, followed up with calls where we felt necessary, especially if somebody had a, a negative reaction, we followed up with a call you know, maybe that would be something that I would probably do a little bit different. I mean, this a property this size, we only had a handful of investors and it, I could have probably called every single investor personally uh, rather than sending them an email initially. So that might be something that I'd probably do differently. Um, but now we're doing deals where uh, they're much larger. I mean, we've got, and our most recent deal is about an $8 million raise. So we've got 90 investors in that deal. So trying to call every one of those in one sitting would be difficult. <laughs> but um, there's ways that you can get the mass communication out and there's tools and we have a, a portal that we use to do that. Um, and so we're, we're just constantly trying to check in, make sure they know we're communicating, even if it's no news, you know, even if no news is still good news. So at least put it out there. Um, and then we're also just um, posting weekly occupancy, weekly collections as well. We're not sending that out. They can log into the portal and see that. So um, I haven't found a real-time tool that connects with the property management software and the portal to make it, you know, to where it's true real-time. So we're like, you know, five days late uh, real-time, but it's still, um, you know, appreciative for most investors because they they can track weekly progress. The reality is most of them don't care about the weekly progress they just want to see their distributions. <laughs> as long as the check shows up in the mail, they're good. Exactly. Yeah, I've been yeah. for sure. Uh, so, Kyle, this has been awesome, man. I, I guess two last questions. One, 
What have you, I know you said this already, but maybe there's some other stuff. Is there a key process change that you've made in order to avoid missteps in future deals? So I would think the biggest thing that we've changed is, um, you know, just our, our property manager criteria. I mean, now we've kind of settled in and we've found our pony that we're, that we've picked for now and they've done a phenomenal job for us moving forward. But, um, you know, we've had four other property managers since then before we found this one. So it took some time to get there. So, you know, and the biggest thing is, you know, we have our criteria. We don't, uh, we don't deviate from that. We find a property manager that can um, honor our criteria and, you know, build their systems, you know, the reporting, their financial reporting. A lot of these financial reporting systems can be 100% customizable to you. So it's just a matter of communicating these things and saying, hey, this is what we want. Can you show me an example of that or, or something like that? And they can do that. So that's the biggest thing. I think on the due diligence side, um, it's continuing to make sure that do as much homework as you can to figure out and make sure that the property is actually performing in line with the, the financial statement. And so, you know, there's only so much you can do. I think we, we tried to do that on that property and we still didn't get it right. But that was a big part of, you know, when you're buying a property from a mom and pop shop, you are kind of taking a little bit extra risk in the fact that especially if they've got commingled bank accounts, commingled funds. I mean, they're, they're essentially living on that. You know, a lot of the properties that I've seen with mom and pop owners are, you know, don't have any debt or anything like that. So they're just like pocketing the cash and paying bills straight from the property. So how do you, you've got to be able to separate all that. And it's just a little bit more work to do that, but it's definitely necessary to, to make sure to take those extra steps on these types of assets. So, I had two, but now I got three. Yeah, that's come on. The the thing that I find most interesting in the conversation is you guys took the plunge, even though you didn't know what the past performance was. How did did you discount the price, or how did you account for that risk in your underwriting, or how do you do it in the future, or did you decide that you won't buy that anymore? Well, we were also buying a deal at a really discounted price already. So, but the biggest thing that we kept coming back to is the true upside. I mean, you know, to give you some numbers, so the, this property had was, it, they were 56 units, all two bedrooms. The highest rent that was paid on that property was 525. Literally the property next door that had some light renovations. Um, it was a fourplex that was kind of across the street. They were getting almost $800 in rent. It was, you know, same neighborhood, same vintage virtually same everything, but it just had some new updates, had, you know, the the whites and the grays, everything that everybody's putting in their properties, the vinyl plank and everything like that. So we knew that if we just went in and spent a little bit of money, that the value is there and, and, and it proved out to be otherwise. So I think the reason why we were able to accept that is because we knew that we were buying the deal at a discount. We could see where deals were trading already and we could see the upside, and but that only came from the research that we had done through using CoStar, using Reese, but actually physically calling those properties and, and touring those properties. I, I toured those properties across the street as a prospective tenant, you know, prior to putting that under contract. So, you know, it was just a matter of getting out there and understanding the market. And, you know, that's the only way that we knew because, you know, the reality is we, we, we might not have um, gone forward with that deal. 
um, if we didn't have a good handle on the market. But we we did our homework on that side, so we knew that we could take a little bit of risk in in that regards. And you know, it's not for everybody. I don't always recommend it, but it it, it proved to be good for us. Awesome, Kyle. What are the parting words that you have for our listeners? Man, um, you know, I think it's along the lines of what uh, what your show is all about, Jerome. I think a lot of people getting into this uh, think it's just you know shun- sunshine and rainbows, and and it's really not. You've got to have a mentality that you know, you're going to stay committed for it. You know, you can't account for things like we've had tenants die in our property, uh, we've had tenants shot in our properties. And, you know, a lot of these properties are in good areas. Sometimes you just can't, you know, you can't escape those types of situations everywhere. And you've got to be able to, to handle those and stay the course and not get fragile from, from these types of events. I mean, we're, we're dealing with people here. So, um, you know, you can't control people. People are going to make their own decisions, whether they're tenants or property managers or anybody else, partners even. So uh, just make sure you understand what you're getting into and, make sure that you have the summit for it all. Beautiful. Kyle, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with our listeners. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Jerome. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.